Hello, I'm Scott Graham. I'm here with Johnny Reardon, and this is the Frantic Assembly podcast. Right, Johnny, remember when we were doing this podcast and we said we'd take a few weeks off just to sort out some other stuff? Yeah, that escalated, didn't it? It's now November. How <laughs> the hell did that happen? But here we are. We are back, back, back. Season two, part two. Come yes, back, yeah. yes, after a, a little hiatus. It's been busy. Oh, hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> You know what I've always wanted to know, Johnny? What have you always wanted to know? What the hell does a producer do? Nobody knows. I know. So that's why I've kidnapped a producer <sighs> and I've brought them down to the fuel bunker, which is where we're recording this podcast, and we're going to beat it out of him. <laughs> so, <laughs> without further ado, let me rip off the gaffer tape and introduce <laughs> you to Peter Holland, <laughs> Frantic Assembly's producer. How are you doing? I'm all right, thanks. Um, just taking your beard off with that yeah, gaffer tape. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> You've got um, very red very quickly. Yeah, I'm very nervous, that's why. Nervous? Yeah, nervous of you two. We're I, vultures. I know what you guys do. Um, <laughs> in the fuel vault. <laughs> Get um, well. Yeah. So, can you help us? What the f*** does a producer do? Uh, it's a good question. That's what my kids ask me all the time. They say, Dad, I understand the theatre, I understand everything about it, I understand what that guy's doing, I understand what she's doing. Yeah. What the hell is Pete Holland doing? Yeah, why are you paying him? Well, um, I haven't even broken that to them. <laughs> they will lose their <laughs> if they realise you're getting paid. Um, it, it's, it's an interesting question. It's one that comes up uh, all the time, and there's quite a few answers to the role of the producer, depending on what organisation you're working with within the arts uh, but fundamentally the way I try and articulate it and it's going to be a long one uh, is the producer strap in is the, um, the 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 kind of person in the middle that uh, everything within a production has to connect to if the producer doesn't know about it you're probably going to get unstuck or in trouble later on um, my job is to kind of preempt a lot of things to, uh, to do with uh, putting a show on and try and solve it before we get to it. But likewise, if we do find a, a ourselves uh, in a pickle, it's about working out the best way of resolving that before we get there. Add on to that the huge range of um, things you're responsible for. I think everyone sees producers as the people who deal with the budget, the boring bit, the money, and it's all about the money. And that is a huge part of my job. Um, particularly here at Frantic, because you want uh, productions to do well financially, but you also want uh, to bring a show in under budget. And... <laughs> Which I failed to do. Yeah, I might just uh, take you to task there. Um, no, actually, yeah, you're right. The, the finance is a huge side of it, but increasingly, I understand it to be more about relationships. Yeah. And seeing those relationships in, in three dimensions, because it's not just about smoothing and making people feel comfortable now. It's, it's, as you said, working out what the potential problems are, what the parameters of this project are, what are the pinch points going to be, when are people going to be stressed, when are they going to need support. Just imagining what that production is going to be from all angles. So it, it's no surprise that you cry at your desk every day. It's quite a big job, isn't it? <laughs> Find me weeping, <laughs> solitary, silent tears. 
Um, it is quite a big job, and on top of that, um, I bring with me the ambition that I have for Frantic Assembly. Um, I see it as a real pivotal time to turn up at the company. I started with you a year and a half ago, mm -hmm. just before we geared up to doing 25 years. And I take that with every conversation about, you know, and what I mean by that is linking it to other industry people or people that I want us to work with and bring them yeah. in. And those conversations happened or started happening literally maybe two years ago. Uh, putting into context, for example, with I Think We Are Alone, uh, the next Frantic Assembly production, touring from February 2020. Um, <laughs> Breaking news. A lot of people think that the first day of that production will be January the 6th when we go into rehearsal, yeah. when actually we talked about that uh, show on my first day, um, which was May, nearly two years ago. Yeah. And a half ago. Yeah, and I think that that relationship between an artistic director and a, a producer is absolutely crucial because that show for me at the time was a show I was really struggling to get my head around. My instinct was telling me I wanted to make a show based on a particular thing, a very personal thing, and, and that being my, uh, my observations of my daughters growing up and their changing relationship with intimacy. How can I as a man comment on that or understand that? appreciate that um, you know it, within a very small personal context but also within a much bigger context of how we all in, reach out for intimacy and crave it in, in a world of social media what's the promise what's the actual delivery there are we ourselves do we connect you know and that that's my head was kind of going mental with all of that and I was trying stuff trying to do things Differently, and that sounding board of a producer is, for me, completely vital. But it's it's not just the sounding board; it's it's the vision too. And I think one of the most extraordinary moments um, of that relationship was when you presented a list of names to me of writers. Said so these are the people we could possibly go and talk to, and. I think somewhere near the bottom, and you'd even probably prefaced it with, this is probably a bit mad, but you put um, Kathy Burke. And I think you just thrown her in as, you know, not necessarily a writer, but just someone we should go and talk to. Yeah. And I looked down the list and went, mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, hello. This is the one. Um, so we went and turned up at our house. Yeah, that was quite How the hell did that happen? <laughs> And, well, I don't, I don't really know either. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I suppose um, uh, Kathy's wonderful agent, uh, James Penford, is uh, a friend of mine. And we were talking, well, I, I actually went to youth theatre um, with James. Uh, so if you look at that in terms of relationships, that's one that's existed for possibly more than 10 years. Dear reader. I'm much older than that. <laughs> I was going to say, Jesus, you yeah. um, theatre ten years. But it's been really, it's been really great to draw upon that, and I think that's also something as a producer that everyone tells you, oh, it's all about networking, it's all about networking and relationships, and that could be quite a daunting thing, um, and I don't think I quite realised how how many connections I had until I came to Frantic Assembly um, was. Uh, allowed to go off and um, 
to connect with those people. Bring that to the table. Let's see who we've got or, or who you want to talk to and let's go out and do it. And that freedom has been kind of liberating um, for me and I imagine for any producer to be able to uh, go and do that. So do people ask you what a producer is? Yeah, all the time. Um, I mean, even people that I've worked closely with in organisations <laughs> for a couple of years would turn around and go, I've got no idea what you do, but you always seem busy. Um, and that's like the biggest compliment. That's the trick, isn't it? <laughs> always like, seem busy. Yeah, it's, yeah I'm doing nothing. Uh, that's either, it's either the biggest compliment or a huge insult to not understanding what we do. I know a brilliant trick to always looking busy. And I learned this when I was a teacher for one year back in Corby. And I had a really crap car would break down so I'd, I'd turn up at school and I'd leave the car there in the morning and walk home and as I left on the day I left the headmaster gave this uh, lovely speech about me and he was saying when I come in to, to work I see Scott's car there before me and every time I leave I see it there at the end of the day and I know no one's working harder at this school than he is I didn't have the heart to break it to him. Mm. But I think, they, there you go, kids. Get yourself a crap car. <laughs> <laughs> I need to buy a car. Yeah. <laughs> Did your role change when you came to Frantic? Is it a different type of producing? Yeah, uh, well, I suppose I've been really uh, lucky. I suppose my, my, my producing career has been very different. I've worked for a commercial uh, theatre company. I've worked for a subsidised theatre, an actual building, and then now I've come in to work with Frantic, who are a subsidised uh, theatre company. Uh, the role is slightly different in all of those, um, and it's about navigating that, those differences. But I've always... It's really interesting. Sometimes when I go into a rehearsal room, actors will go, oh, we don't often meet the producer, We've never, we don't know who they are, or we'll, never, we'll see you at press night, we'll never see you again. Whereas I've always wanted to be in the thick of it. One, because I really, really enjoy it. But two, logistically, I can't preempt a problem if I'm not around. Yeah. And I think sometimes I can sit in a meeting or I can be in a rehearsal room and go, okay, I know what, the, I know what this is leading up to and what that might do to affect the budget or will we have to look at the truck or just basic things that could spiral out of control, but I can try and get ahead of it. That saying, I don't always predict everything. Uh, th there'll always be something that... Um, Find yourself in A&E in Plymouth with Joe Layton with a poorly ankle. Exactly. The <laughs> scream of Joe Layton <laughs> in that rehearsal room uh, for The Unreturning, which we were rehearsing. Oh, it was like Mariah Carey. It was. Yeah, were you I, there that day? Yeah. Yeah. It was, yeah, that was a tense moment. Because also I thought he was joking. We were doing quite a joyous warm-up and we were just dancing around and it just so happened that... Uh, he wouldn't mind me saying that there was a lip on the floor of about a centimetre his ankle just rolled off of. Yeah. Um, and it was for all of the big risky stuff that we were doing, it was that that did it. But yeah, I thought he was joking. But that was me straight into a taxi with Joe yeah. going to Plymouth A&E. And he, he was panicking yeah. about what it could be. And I was panicking about what, it was, uh, what, what I meant for the show. Um, I was just getting fitted for his costume. <laughs> <laughs> Which you always do. <laughs> any opportunity. Yeah, the show went on regardless. Um, but again, if, if, if that had been a second phone call out of the room, yeah. um, I'm already on the back foot. 
That said, I don't make a habit of taking people to hospital. No, you don't. It's but def- but definitely happened before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, hi Pete. Yeah. <laughs> Who is it this time? Yeah. Tweeters. Yeah. <laughs> the usual room. I always remember you being in the room and uh, your fingers going furiously on the keyboard of your laptop, but your eyes were constantly just on what we were doing. And the flinches that were coming from you when we tried something new were brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I, well, we, we had it on Ignition uh, recently oh, yeah. uh, down at Theatre Peckham. I walked in just at the moment that you were flinging one of the guys from one end of the room to the other. And I've become accustomed to it, particularly with Frantic, that you've you got it, you've got it covered. But there is a part of me always going, how are we going to work that one out? Or what mm. does that mean? What's the bigger picture of that? And what if? But we don't do what ifs. You've always got A and E on speed dial. <laughs> Straight away, connection, direct line. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's you again. I've got a little bit of a leading question for you. Mm. Um, is the role of a producer creative? I think some people will tell you it's not. Mm. And I think some people perhaps are there, there to solve, problem solve, work on the budget and, and, and be that person all really, really important parts of the job. Um, but I think it can be as creative as you want to make it. I I mean, I, I, I trained in um, music theatre, Bretton Hall, three years, and <laughs> never, and, and have that kind of energy, you know, of... of, of High kicks. Of, of all of that, of that razzmatazz. But... Is that why you're wearing the leg warmers? <laughs> the only reason I'm wearing the leg warmers. But um, why they're the only thing you're wearing? <laughs> Um, moving on. He is. He's blushing. And he's blushing all over. What I like doing is working (laughs) with an artistic director, usually, um, to be able to um, take that creative conversation, input to it, but then uh, ultimately deliver on what on what that idea was and what's been really nice uh, with yourself and other people that I've worked with is that I can make an offer and sometimes we'll discuss it and go nope actually no or other times you go god I haven't thought about that as an idea let alone you know that's a completely different way of looking at it and it goes off to create something else which arguably I think we can say the next show is yeah. kind of developed like yeah. that um, from my point of view I think it's absolutely vital that the uh, the, the producer is creative and thinks that they, they can be, that they, that invitation is there. I absolutely rely on those conversations um, because you've got to bounce stuff back and forward. But also, I love it when when Pete suggests, you know, what you should be doing, Do you know, what we should be doing. <laughs> you want to just stop doing that, <laughs> Do, get yourself a proper job, that type of thing. Um, and I think it has been, that's what has been wonderful about it. And I think this year in particular, as, as we've turned 25, there's been so much fresh, you know, blood and energy into the company and Pete's been a massive part of that. So it would be very, very stupid of me not to invite that new voice, that new energy to, to help push new directions for the company. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you've got quite a heavy hand on branding, marketing, and... and Well, yeah. Um, the interesting thing about that is that I actually enjoy it. The social media side of it, I get really involved. I mean, every week on our productions, we have meetings with our press and marketing 
um, teams and we discuss ideas and I, I, it, is, it is a part of a producer's job but I, I'm, I, I enjoy that side mm. of it, um, particularly how we can put our name out there. The interesting thing is about reaching out to people that might not necessarily know about Frantic Assembly. We have such a huge following, but for me it's about finding those people who've never heard about it. And there's so many different strands to what uh, the company do, does. It's not just about on stage, it's about the seemingly hundreds of people that work and to deliver our education side of things. The learn and train department is massive. And for me, I get to kind of play around with all of that mm. by looping it up together in a brand. I think it's like there, there are obviously lots of potentially negative connotations of social media, but one of the best things that we get now with it is like it's the instant litmus test of an audience response. And I think it, what people might not realise is that if you tweet frantic, the likelihood is they're either talking to you, Scott, or they're talking to you, Pete. It's yeah, that you've got your, your thumb on it and you're listening to it and it's a chance to react and see what people are thinking when I've whenever I've had the keys to the th frantic Twitter um, at about half nine when a show comes down it's wild isn't it like it, it yeah. you feel like a rock yeah. star because suddenly your phone is going zzz, 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 yeah. Zzz. Yeah. Um, that must be really useful though as a as a as a filter for you to see what people are saying it's really good to good gauge what what people are saying it's good uh it's good to find out what happened in a show that night that you might not have realised. <laughs> before, the, before the show report comes in, yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I think the, the, it, what's really useful about it is that we, as a company, and the, 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 I've never really experienced it to this degree, we do have a connection with our audience in a way that um, others don't, but it's, it's accessibility. I think um, because of that, people tweeting in or, or writing in or anything, they will generally get a response, um, which that kind of access to an artistic director isn't something that I've necessarily seen before. Mm. I'm really conscious that you're going to get a thousand emails now saying. <laughs> <laughs> I think through social media you tend to get the kind of responses that say, I really like the show. Yeah. Um, and long may that continue. Because <laughs> if you didn't like it, I don't want to hear from you. <laughs> no, it, I mean, that tends to be what you get. Um, and that's great. It's, it's lovely to hear, but it's not necessarily the pure litmus test of whether that show works because it, you know, it yeah. tends to be the people who think it did work that respond. But please, God, let, let, let it stay that way. <laughs> so, how did you become a producer? Also, when did you give yourself that name? When did, when did you feel comfortable in that skin, if ever? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, getting into producing was uh, quite interesting. While I was at university, a group of us got together to um, hire a theatre space, put on a show uh, of a friend who was, who was writing it, and uh, play to an audience for three performances. And I'd done the contract, I did all the organisation, I'd sorted out the transport, ran a very minimal budget, and was just getting on with it. It was about making it happen, that's what it was all about. And it wasn't until after the show that somebody said, can I speak to the producer, please? And I realised that, what well, I did, I didn't really know what the producer was. <laughs> and I went, oh, sorry, I don't, we, we haven't got a producer. And they said, well, who, who signed the contract? 
And I was like, well, that's me. And they went, well, you must be the producer then. So that's kind of how I found out about it. That's and, great. And actually, grow, you know, growing up or, or navigating the crazy world of uh, the arts, um, producers didn't really exist in terms of um, in regional venues or uh, within theatres. It was always, you're either Cameron Macintosh or you, you, I, I didn't. Uh, yeah. You know, from my, my growing up, didn't really have access to anybody who was in those sorts of roles to look up to. Um, so then I, after university, I went off and did some performing, which we won't talk about, and uh, you won't Google, it's not there. Uh, and follow you on Instagram, <laughs> yeah. you do post it well, quite a lot. Well, <laughs> you think it's not there. Happier times, happier times. If you want to look at the screen. Okay. Um, but I basically <laughs> got to a point where I was... Uh, taking on extra responsibilities or finding different ways of doing uh, uh, things about making theatre and I wanted to move to London uh, I'm originally uh, born and bred in uh, from Nottingham and I moved to London but needed a job and I got a job working for Joseph Weinberger um, which is a theatrical rights company it's now owned by Music for Theatre International and I spent a year with them, uh, essentially packing boxes and sending scripts out to other people. Um, but what I did while I was there, I would make, I would reach out to these people making these shows because creativity-wise, I, you know, I, I had very little input in, in what was happening there. But then I'd go out and see those shows that people were making, and that was whether it was at the Union Theatre or it was. At the Dominion. It, I, I always tried to make as much an effort in that year to see as much as possible. Um, and kind of started building my little book from there, I suppose. Um, it's interesting how we talk about networking and relationships. I didn't realise I was doing that. I didn't actively go out to pull those names together. Um, but looking back on it <clears throat> 10, 12 years on, uh, I have been able to do that. From then, I got an administrator job uh, working for the Birmingham Stage Company, who were based in London, um, and I stayed with them for four years, working up through their ranks as general manager, uh, which then enabled me to get the job uh, working for the Lyric Hammersmith in West London, and then coming to you guys. I thought you were qualified. I don't know how you've got this job. Complete blagger. <laughs> Um, I think you hit on something there about the networking and doing it without realising you were doing it. I think that's really important. Um, yes, it's important to network. It's a horrible, horrible, it's horrible phrase. Yeah. Um, but we've talked about it as just being nice to people. And it comes down to uh, saying please and thank you, I think. You know, yeah. just being polite. Um, because everybody can smell the networker in the room. You know, that cynical collecting of names. And when you're talking to them, they're looking over your shoulder to see who else they can oh, talk to. It. You know, yeah, you can see it. it. Yeah. And people might feel they have to do it, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I also know enough successful producers who are those people and who have done very well through it. So I can't say it doesn't work. No, it, because yeah. it does. It's just those people are shit. <laughs> I think that's really interesting about that in terms of uh, networking and perhaps not realising that is that through the freedom that I've had to work with you and suggest things is that Morgan Large, for example, who's designing our next show, I Think We Are Alone, um, I had a conversation with Morgan maybe five years ago. Um, 
I've put his name, I've, I've admired his work for a long time. And we always were saying, well, I, I put him forward for projects and this, that, and the other, and they never quite worked. So then to be able to, I sent you his portfolio and we, and we looked at it together and went, actually, there's something in this. Had a meeting, I very much stepped back and just let you and uh, Kath talk to him. And then when we finally said, yeah, we're going with Morgan, I was like, yeah, that's actually five years in the making, mm. uh, potentially, you know, yeah. in, in that sort of world. But um, it's really difficult because I, 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 I meet with uh, uh, younger producers who ask those sorts of questions. And I think you, you mentioned much, earlier... Much younger producers. Well, it's, but, it's, but it's when you <laughs> said about um, when did you feel confident to walk around with that title, that mm. when when do you yeah. And I don't know, I, I don't know the answer to that because interestingly, our exec at Frantic, uh, Kerry Whelan, he said to me one day, will you stop putting yourself down? You do it all the time. You do it with humour and you, you just, like you are the producer, go with it. And that might sound, might sound a bit ridiculous, but it's, I've, Oh, this sounds really cheesy. I enjoy I enjoy doing the job. Are we so, going to put music under this? Yeah, if you could do Land of Hope and Glory or something like that. I just really enjoy the job. So actually, it becomes it becomes fun to be able to bring those ideas and make that jigsaw work. And and the way you express that, there's no doubt that's that's not creative. Hmm. You've talked yeah. about uh, matching people to projects, and that takes vision. You're not just responding to other people, and that's. It's that that I uh, love and appreciate and need and find absolutely vital. I think the not being able to wear the cloak comfortably <laughs> and say, hello, I, producer, you know, that's been a consistent theme, I think, yeah. for these podcasts. That um, Imposter syndrome. The imposter syndrome, yeah, the, and the, the doubt. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think Kerry's absolutely right, and we should always call it out on our friends and say, no, you are, you yeah, are that. I agree. But we shouldn't belittle the fact that that voice is there. And actually, it can be really necessary too. Some people wear that coat with them so much confidence. Yeah. You know? I think, I think it's about checking yourself, isn't it? And always making sure you're doing the best by others as well as yourself. Um, and having that, you know, collective vision, Frantic's very good at that in terms of its collaboration uh, with others, not just those who are, I mean, we, we focus on collaboration about those who are in the room making it, but actually as an office, it's, we're all on the same team, you know, um, and that's really exciting. So, 50 years as a producer, um, uh, you know, there, there must have been some good shows. Oh, sorry, let me rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been times where you've thought to yourself, what the hell am I doing? Or, you know, really stress, uh, stressful or absurd or brilliant or brilliant moments. Does anything stand out? Do you remember any of it, Pete? Uh, you black a lot of it out, yeah, Scott. Yeah. No, um, what's really interesting is that there, there comes a point of all the creative uh, chat we've talked about and the involvement and the development and bringing people together. There is also a lot of the time when I do have to go and write contracts or I do have to talk about the budget or uh, 
meet with designers to talk about builders or book trucking or talk to all of our venues about how we're going to get there, this, that and the other. And there is always a period of time where you're out of the rehearsal room or you're out of tech and you haven't quite got a clue what's, how it's developing. Um, and then, but there is, there's, there's nothing better actually, regardless of the show, about having that first, um, that first preview. Because a lot of the time it's just about getting it out there, getting it done. And, and having that kind of, oh, there we go. And sure, there's always work to do after the first preview, but to collectively share that with a company and your creatives and go, we've done it, We're, here we go. And then, because that's, that's where a lot of the work starts, isn't it? Mm. During those maybe three, possibly five uh, previews that you have and put it in front of an audience. Um, so that's the bit that I'm always proud about. What's really interesting as well is how we all gear our productions up to this press night, this golden night yeah. um, that we've got to do and, and when it's open, it's open and this, that and the other. However, my job doesn't actually stop at that point. Um, I've never been any good at uh, being able to kind of work out what the critics are going to do. And uh, I do read reviews and sometimes I read them and go, no, God, you've got no idea what that, what that meant or what that process was to get there. You've kind of dismissed it in, in two paragraphs. Um, and that's the tricky thing about our uh, industry full stop. But I'm not going to go into criticism. That's another podcast for another day. Um, but what is interesting is how you work with a company after that. So, for example, you'll have your press night, but then we might have four or five months of touring of that show later on. Now, uh, you know, we, we've always been um, very fortunate in, in most of my jobs, actually, where the audience has always uh, been very, very responsive to our work. Um, but I have to work in a way to be able to spin that, good or bad, to ensure that the show continues its trajectory of uh, ultimately selling tickets and, and building an audience but also working with the company to ensure that you know they feel very connected to the work. Now, what is frustrating after a, a, a press night is that one comment, and that can either be from uh, a publication or a blogger or just an individual, actually, that can completely throw a company sometimes mm. and take them... Well, just you've you've spent four months, uh, four months. You've spent four weeks creating something, building that confidence, having that that kind of precious safe zone that you have in a rehearsal room. And I think within Frantic Assembly's rehearsal room, they are very collaborative. So actually, everyone feels an ownership to a piece. Um, I have to ensure that we can keep moving on in the right direction, I suppose, and making sure that everyone feels. Um, positive about the work, whilst also finding solutions, because I think um, I think you'd agree with me that if there was something that we wanted, that we felt was unfinished or we wanted to iron out, we'd find a way of getting some time back to, to look and address that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it is so frustrating that it feels like it's your show, but then when you put it in front of a press night, which we all need, we need it to set up yeah, the yeah. tour, but it's a little bit like doing a driving test you know, and you've got to remind the company that this is why we're doing it. We're doing it for, we're doing it for the show. It's all about the show. Yeah. But then it all hinges on whether a few people say the right things in the press. And if they don't say the right thing, then that tour 
will not be picked up by the West End. It will not go to Broadway. It will not have another tour. It doesn't matter whether it sells out because the next time it comes around, it needs to have those people and those stars yeah, on the poster. It, yeah. And it's a horrible, cynical, reductive way of looking at it. And I find it really hard as well because the last two shows that I've gone to see, I really didn't like thinking that that was horrible. And then came out to see an abundance of great reviews for both. So I, I don't get it. I don't. Yeah. Um, but I've seen, you know, your, your job is very much to make sure people feel safe and uh, secure and just, and with me, to help remind them about the quality of their performance and what's really important. And we've been lucky really? that we haven't, you know, been torn apart. I do remember a show from uh, years ago, the press night of Pool No Water, which toured... Um, toured the UK first and then came to London and had great reviews four and five star reviews all across the tour then came to London and then got like one star reviews all across the board um, and Mark Ravenhill got eviscerated by the press and I just thought what is going on here because none of it was necessarily a comment on the show Yeah, a lot of it was very personal about Mark and I, I've got my, my theories which I'm not going to expand on yeah, but I remember how low I felt. Absolutely hit rock bottom. And the same with the, the cast. And I felt I wasn't quite mature enough to be able to say the right thing to the cast yeah. or even to myself. And I was very much missing that producer role at the time who could offer a little bit of per perspective, maybe. And, and, and Stephen felt the same way. We just spiralled into depression. And actually, in my case, and I think maybe his, actual depression... Mm. And it was a very, very difficult time. And a few people, uh, I remember Simon Stokes, the ex-artistic director of um, Theatre Royal Plymouth, saying to me, you think that you up? No, it hasn't. Forget them. Forget it. Look at what you're doing now. Look at what you've learned. Look at what you're applying. And that was brilliant. It, was just, it just put my feet back on the ground again and just helped me see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Put things into perspective. But... We also can't dismiss it because we use it. If we get those five stars, if we get those five stars, oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes, finally they get it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I've said it to you before. Um, I booked my ticket to Porno Water, then that review came out, and I remember reading a review and going, oh, we'll go anyway. And that was my first frantic show and it blew my mind yeah. away and I loved it and now I'm here. So like it, it is that thing of going, oh, it's a, it did very nearly make me not go. Um, and then life would be very different now. But also it, people are clever enough to kind of go, well, I'm going to go make my, my own mind up based on relationships with uh, theatre companies. But it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's hard. And I think it's, it's really important to remember that well, we might have suggested there that the producer has to play a, you know, a, a tricky game with the, the critics and the cast. But what I'm paying to point out is that that should never be cynical. No. You're not just using the words of a critic and you're not just using the energy of an actor to make that show happen to the best of its abilities. It works best when it's got proper human heart. Yeah. And, and when it is genuinely about relationships... And people feel that they are looked after. I think there are people who wear that coat who don't get that and hide mm. 
when when the going gets tough, you know. And I'm not interested in that. One of the things I'm really proud of about this company is that is the the accessibility, the the openness, and that's reflected in the amount of people that get in touch with us about mm. how to make work. You know, what can I do, and and the, the amount of effort we go to try to answer questions and point people in the right direction and, and give people um, opportunities. I think, as, as we've identified, there's a whole kind of mystery around the role of the producer. And what I think I have to say is that when Stephen and I formed Frantic Assembly, we formed it with Vicky Middleton, who was Vicky Coles at the time. And Vicky was never a performer, never interested in being a performer. We identified a need for that role. She was the administrative producer, you know, vast. <laughs> she did everything, yeah, absolutely yeah. everything. And we would not have survived five minutes without her. And I do see people talk about, you know, wanting to start a, a company, uh, but they're doing it with an idea for a show. And that might be one idea. Um, but what they don't have is that person who can make it happen. Um, now... I think my background, Vicky's background, Stephen's background, the way that we form the company isn't necessarily of help because it's so specific. You know, I can't offer that as, as advice. But would you have advice for someone who was you know, asking us, how do you get involved in, in producing? Or even what do I need? What is, that, what is it that's missing? I've got this brilliant idea. How can I make it um, come alive? And the answer was no, he can't do it. <laughs> he simply cannot answer that question. Um, I think there are so many different avenues now, particularly more than ever, uh, for producing. Um, you can go and do an MA in producing. Uh, you could. Uh, there is a brilliant scheme uh, called Stage One, which looks after a lot of new and upcoming producers and gives them a platform. Uh, pairs them up with other organisations, etc. I didn't do any of those, so when I see that on CVs particularly, I'm like, oh God, they, you know, I've never done any of that, and that imposter syndrome thing comes back again. Um, what I would say is, and what I do say to people, is that you've really got to have a passion for theatre, and that sounds really obvious, but you're not. It, if you're not going to enjoy doing it, go it like there's other places to go and work uh, when it comes down to that I would say go and see it's, it's about knowledge and building that and there's only you that that can do it um, I see it on um, there's a producers forum for example on Facebook and people go has anyone got all the information for this and you, you kind of sit there and you go oh I could I could handle that all over or I, but it, it won't be as organic as it is if you actually go out and do that and what I mean by that is Go and see lots of theatre, and I know there's barriers in terms of cost, but it, particularly for young people, there's so many schemes and um, theatres are, are dying to get the next gen into uh, those er into their buildings. So, so go out and use them, but then find out who's making that. You know, uh, look up online, see who the creative team is, see who is making the work that you would like to make. And then potentially either reach out or get a good idea of how you want to create work and then find a way of doing it. And that's, that is the tricky bit that I always fail to kind of articulate properly is when finances come into it. Where do I get the money? And I get that a lot. I was going to my question to you. You know, Pete, where, I, I, where do I get the money for my show? 
Um, and as I've mentioned, I've either worked for a building, a subsidised theatre company or a commercial theatre company that was very fortunate to have um, a title like Horrible Histories that enabled them to, to do those. And you can't necessarily do that from the first show you ever do. But what I will say is, is that you can take whatever you make at whatever scale to make your next one. You've got to think about it in terms of where you're heading or what, or what you want to achieve out of it. And it's that drive I think you need in a producerial capacity to, in order to, to, to keep pushing that forward. It won't happen overnight. Some people will do one show and it'll be the best thing you've ever seen and they'll go and fly. I mean, there's an example of, of a company like that in, in the West End right now who have done very, very uh, wondrous things that happened over a very quick amount of time. However, you only have to go to Edinburgh Festival to see 3,000 shows and I don't even know what the percentage is, but I would, I would argue that only x percent tiny percent are are able to to pay people and, and do all of that not the most helpful advice i suppose but you've got to have a wider understanding i guess what i'm saying about the whole picture to see where you fit in because if you can't answer what you're, you're bringing to it then i think you're going to struggle i think there's another way to look at it as well certainly for um directors or theater makers that want to work with a producer or need a producer because um, I've heard people say where can I get a producer and they, they want that person to do all the bits that they don't want to do yeah. or can't do and I think that's a quite a problematic way to look at it you've got to look at a producer as someone you want to work with and someone who brings all the things you bring to this company you know they need to be bringing that to you. It needs to be a conversation and it needs to be a challenge. And, and I understand a lot of people don't want to be challenged, but I think that leads to dead theatre and dead relationships. Those collaborations come about normally with the person saying you'll get paid once the funds come in. So eventually, <laughs> yeah. essentially the producers end up working for free and it's all hinging on the success of a funding application or a fundraising yeah. drive, which is really tricky. Yeah. But what I would say, and I will say this... <laughs> you say it. You say it. Yeah. Wrapping around exactly where we started what, with about what, what on earth is that producer doing and I don't know what you do, chances are that producer has been working on it far longer and will work on it much more after the event than anybody else on the team. That yeah, right. Me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, Pete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that all right? Yeah. Oh, it's all right. Yeah. You did really well. Something for the fans. <laughs> <laughs> Not my fans. <laughs> well, we'll see. No, that was great. Yes. Thanks, Pete. That's great. Really uh, informative because, I, as I said, I have been wondering what you do. Yeah. And that, um, well, it killed an hour. I'm not yeah. entirely sure I was listening, but hopefully people out there were, will, could... Let us know. <laughs> Let us know. No, thank you. I think that's great. If you're listening and you want to get in contact, maybe if you want to send Pete a direct question, uh, then you can contact <laughs> us at podcast at franticassembly.co.uk or as ever via all of our social media channels. Just use the hashtag franticpodcast. Thank you. Thanks, Pete. Bye. And this is where you can help us raise £25,000. 
So this is our 25th birthday and we are asking for your help to support the work we do by making a donation to our 25 at 25 fundraising appeal. Since 1994, Frantic Assembly has been making theatre accessible, breaking down barriers to engagement and participation and providing opportunities for young people to discover and develop careers in the arts. Our 25 at 25 appeal is incredibly simple. We want to raise £25,000. This will help us continue making thrilling theatre and create vital opportunities to develop young talent. You can do this by making a one-off donation or by setting up a regular monthly direct debit. We also invite you to be part of the Frantic journey by becoming a Frantic champion. For an annual fee of £10, champions will receive regular news updates and advance notice of shows and events. More than that though, you'll be supporting our work. You'll be a champion of the company and part of the worldwide Frantic family. If you are a UK taxpayer, we may be able to claim gift aid on your donation, which means for every pound you donate, we can claim an additional 25 pence. Please check the gift aid box when making a donation. Thank you all.